great. That was wonderful. Great job. And uh, love the class and a new class in our church. And of course, uh, this is the two weeks that we give people a chance, uh, easy chance, to um, join up with a small group. And so that's the reason for the tables out here in the atrium. Immediately after the service, we're all going to go out there together. And if you um, already, if you're already in a small group, maybe you can meet some people, some new people. If you're not in a small group, you can sort of look through and see uh, where you would like to plug in. Now, I know we've got a lot going on outside these church walls, and we, we prayed for it today, but we, we don't want to ignore that. We know that we have so much going on in Afghanistan today, and then also the hurricane uh, before nightfall is going to be hitting into Louisiana. We need to be praying for them. And we have all kinds of other things. COVID, you know people right now that have COVID. There's a big surge of it here in Florida and across the United States. And so we've got so many things going on outside these walls. And we're thinking, what can we say today? What can God's word bring to us today that's really going to make a difference? How, how can we perhaps be a part of the answer today in serving others? Because, I mean, after all, for example, if... Uh, Fidel Castro, the dictator of Cuba, the one who brought in the 60s communism in the 1960s into Cuba. Some of you don't know this, but back in the 1950s, he was actually in the minor leagues for the Los Angeles Dodgers. He was a minor league ball player. And what would have happened if someone would have gotten to him and explained the gospel of Jesus Christ? We would be looking at a whole different Cuba today. Sirhan Sirhan, we, you've heard the news that he may be released any day now. What would have happened if someone would have found him and said, look, I want to share with you the very best news that you've ever heard in your life? That would have changed all society. How many people have been saved, discipled in the church, where if they had been left outside the church, they would have caused maybe more chaos, more problems than any of the people that I've mentioned this morning? We can make a difference as the people of God, but we need to do it together. And this ser series of messages on together, we've looked at several things, the reason why the belonging together, but today we want to look at serving together because we want to have a life that matters. And if we're going to do that, we need to be a part of a larger group and also a smaller group that we can make a difference in our lives together. Well, as we look at the scriptures, we've said already in this message, uh, the series, I, I've quoted these verses a couple of times. Let me read them to you. Philippians 2, 3, and 4 is our goal. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his own interest, but also the interest of others. It's easier said than done, isn't it? Put others ahead of yourself. Let me share with you a story. I'll share with you a story now and then one at the end of the message as time permits. But a young a lady by the name of Catherine Laws was the wife of the warden at Sing Sing Prison back in the 1920s and 30s. And in 1921, when her husband first took over as warden, she immediately showed up at the first basketball game there, the, one of the worst prisons in America, showed up to the game with her children in tow and watched the basketball game. She heard of someone that was blind, so she uh, got some braille for him and taught him uh, how to read the braille. Heard about some deaf uh, uh, people in the prison, and so she learned sign language, and she began to teach them that. 
She, every, every time she saw a need, she went and met that. And she did that for 16 years, 1937, a day when the warden or his wife did not show up for work and all the prisoners knew something was wrong. The assistant warden who was in charge that day goes out into the courtyard, seeing a massive amount of prisoners looking at a fence, looking out through the fence, knowing that Catherine Laws had been in a car accident and died and now her funeral was, being t- was taking place. Only, in fact, less than a mile away as they looked through the fence. Well, the warden, assistant warden, knew that they loved her. And he said this, to the most notorious prisoners in America, some murderers, some uh, certainly with life sentences, he said to them, I'm gonna let you go through these gates, I'm gonna let you go to the funeral, but all of you have to be back before nightfall tonight. Those prisoners left that prison, went to the funeral, paid their respects to someone who made a difference in their life, and every single one to the man was there before dark, came back to prison. A difference one lady made in someone else's life. And so there's an illustration of Philippians 2, 3, and 4. But what does Jesus say about it? Well, the Sermon on the Mount, is really kind of like a table of contents to the rest of the New Testament. In fact, Jesus built on the Sermon on the Mount and almost everything he mentioned here in this sermon, uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is talked about again in the rest of the Gospels. And then the epistles build upon that. Way back in this chapter, chapter 7, we read in uh, verse 12. It says, whatever you do, which wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, as we read this verse, we realize that other religions have something like it. And usually it's kind of in the negative, you know, don't do this because you don't want it to be done to you. But this is, Jesus said in the positive, however you want people to treat you, you treat them that way, so fulfill the law and the prophets. Now, what does that verse really mean? Well, it's called the golden rule because it's so valuable. But what what does it really mean? What is the principle behind it? How do we do it? After all, that's, that's pretty hard. Pretty difficult to be consistent with that. What's, what's the key to that? And then maybe some practical things on what we can do. I first of all want us to look at this passage and I want us to see what it means. The principle behind it. The principle behind it. Now I want you to notice it says, this is the law. This is the law and the prophets. And people look at this and say, well now wait a minute, pastor. That means if I just love uh, my neighbor, if, if I just... Uh, treat everybody else the way I want to be treated, then I don't have to worry about all the rules, right? Well, no, that's not exactly what Jesus was saying. He said, well, how do you know that? Because it says right here in verse 12, that's all it says. But you look back in chapter five and we look at verse 17 at the beginning of this sermon. And he says this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come to abolish, I haven't come to abolish them. I came to fulfill them. He goes on to say, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He says in verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter in the kingdom of God. And so he's really saying, he's not saying you don't have to obey the law. It's not that you throw out the law. So what is he saying? He's saying that if you do what I'm asking you to do, you won't have to post the rules. 
You'll just do them from the heart, which is the key to what we're talking about in ministry and service. He says in Matthew 22, verses 37 40, when a, when a lawyer came to ask him a question, now get to seeing what's happening. Jesus is there and he's getting all kinds of questions and the questions were really to try to stump him a little bit. And a lawyer came up to him and said, what do I need to do to please God? Really? I mean, what, what are the greatest commandments? That's what he was really asking. He was saying, what do I need to do to please God? Sincere question. Jesus answered this way. He says, he says, the whole law and the prophets can be summed up in two things. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That takes care of the first four of the Ten Commandments. Then he says, the second is likewise, love thy neighbor as thyself. That takes care of the last six commandments. He says, if you do this from the heart, it's going to fulfill the law because it's going to come from the heart and not a set of rules that you have to do, the do's and the don'ts. So what is he saying here? He's saying, look, these, these are not, these are the rules, but yet they're not the rules. It's the rules of the heart. See, the heart is what really changes us. You and I cannot serve consistently unless it comes from a heart of love. We cannot serve consistently unless it comes from a heart of love. That's what he's saying. But notice he says, he says, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. What does that mean? Well, it's the same idea as Matthew 22, Philippians 2, when it talks about you and I being unselfish, not full of conceit, but rather humbling ourselves and putting other people's needs ahead of our own. Wow, how difficult is that? But that's what it's saying. It's the same idea. Now, you and I, whether we want to really admit it or not, we're, we're really born into selfishness. You don't, you don't really have to teach a child to say, mine, mine, mine. You, you, what do you have to do? Now, I want you to share. You've got to share. Why do we say that? Because they don't want to share. They don't want to. They, they want what they want. And we grow up that way. Selfishness and pride, as we've said, is like two sides of a coin. The coin is maybe worth 25 cents, but the coin is made up heads and tails. Sin is made up of pride and selfishness. Self, maybe self-centeredness is a better, more politically uh, correct way to say it. But you look and you say, well, the rich people, the wealthy people have people working for them. Kings and emperors have people working for them sometimes without pay. So if I get powerful enough, if I get rich enough, what do I want? I want other people to serve me. We want others to serve us rather than serving others. It's a natural thing. Without, without Jesus Christ, it's just not going to happen. And you say, now, wait a minute, Pastor, I know of people, maybe you're one of them, that have gone out, you've fed the homeless, you've given money to the poor, and you've done things, and maybe you're not a believer. Maybe we have somebody watching at home or by television, and you say, well, I've done that kind of stuff before, and yet I'm not a believer. I'm not saying that you cannot be benevolent. I'm not saying that you can't serve and have ministry, but you will not do it consistently. Now, why is that? Well, the reason you won't is because the reason you do it in the first place. If you were to really look at your heart, you would discover you like to go out and give some, maybe some money to the homeless, and the reason you do that makes you feel good. You go out and serve someone because it makes you feel uh, fulfilled in some way. One of our former college pastors was here and he was talking to me and he said, yeah, you know, we, we have some students, not 
very few of them, but a few of them that just want to go out and feed the homeless one time. And that's their ministry. They just want to say, that's my ministry. How many times you've done it? Well, one time in the last six months, but that's my ministry. And that's how we are. We do things because we, we feel sorry for someone or we, we look at them and say, well, I, I'm uncomfortable with that person having a need that, that I don't have. And I need to share that with them. But to really minister from the heart, we need a heart of love. Chuck Swindoll, in one of his books, shares a story, a little prose or poem by Ruth Harms Calkin. And it, it's entitled, I Wonder. And she says, you know, Lord, how I serve you with great emotional fervor in the limelight. You know how eagerly I speak to you at a women's club. You know how I effervesce when I promote a fellowship group. You know my genuine enthusiasm at a Bible study. But I wonder how I would react. I wonder if you pointed me to a basin of water, you asked me to wash the callous feet of a bent and wrinkled old woman day after day, month after month, in a room where nobody saw and nobody knew. Kind of brings it down to, and you say, well, now, wait a minute. If that was, if that was my mother, I, I, may, I wouldn't want to do that, but I would do that. And I would consider it an act of service. And someone else would say, well, I would do anything for my children. Well, listen, I would do anything for my children as well. I'd do anything for my wife. I'd really do anything for my grandchildren as well if you really want to spread it out. I would do most things for you. But what about the person that we just don't know? What about the person outside these walls? What about the person even in this church that you don't know? How far would you be willing to go? And you say, well, the reason, the reason I would do that for my children or for my spouse, because I love them. Exactly. And the reason why we have a difficult time doing that outside of ourselves, outside of those who love us, is because of the love difficulty, the challenge. And so how do you do it? How do you do it? What about the power for it? I want you to notice in verse, uh, chapter 7, once again, right below verse 12, he says this in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now, keep in mind, again, he, he's looking at this. You might say these are the Ten Commandments of the New Testament. This is the law of the New Testament. Jesus was there, as we read just a few minutes ago in, in uh, chapter 5, verse 20. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will likewise perish. He was there for a purpose, certainly to die on the cross for our sins. That was his ultimate goal. But in order for people to understand why he died, that there was a purpose to his death and resurrection, he had to get them lost. He had to convince them they needed a savior, that Abraham wasn't going to save them, Moses wasn't going to save them, the law was not going to save them. They needed a savior. And the way he did that in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is to tell them a lifestyle, share with them a lifestyle that's impossible to meet, just like the Ten Commandments. He says, enter in the gate. It's narrow. Well, it's really what he's saying is, by yourself, it's impossible we are sinners separated from God. That's the, the bad news, the worst news in that. We can't do anything about it. Jesus Christ had to come and die on the cross for our sins. What he's sharing with us here, if you're going to do this, you've got to be saved. 
You have to have Jesus Christ living in your heart. When that comes into our life, then what, what do we do? Philippians 2, 3, we humble ourselves before the cross. God, I can't do anything to save myself. I'm getting out of the saving business. I'm inviting you to come into my life and forgive my sins and make me the person that you need to be. How is he going to do that? He said, well, you know, I can see how forgiveness of sin, but how is he going to really change my life? The Bible says the third person of the Trinity of God comes to live inside of your heart and mine. The Holy Spirit comes to bear witness with our spirit. We're children of God. He comes to recreate the life of Jesus Christ in us, and he gives us the love of God. Listen to what Romans 5, 5 tells us. And hope does not put to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so we find here that it all begins with salvation, but then it is applied, the love is applied through the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. What do we say the fruit of the Spirit is? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness, self-control. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. A lot of people interpret this. I don't necessarily, but a lot of good scholars interpret that as this. The fruit, because it's singular, is the fruit of the Spirit is love, period. Now, if you have love, then you're also going to have love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kind, self-control. I don't necessarily look at it that way, but you could. Because if you really love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and your neighbor as yourself, why does he keep saying that? As yourself, as yourself. It keeps saying that. It says that several times in the Old Testament, New Testament. Why? Because we have a tendency to love ourselves. It's just, you know, that's just a natural thing. Outside of Christ, Adam and Eve, once they sinned against God, what did they do? They blamed, you know, Adam said, Lord, it's the woman that you made for me. She made me sin. And Eve said, it's the serpent, God. It's, it's kind of all your fault. And so we turn from a God-centered life into a self-centered life. And so it's difficult for us to come out from that. So what happens to us? What, what's going on in our life? We have, we have a struggle. And the struggle is we're self-centered naturally. And when that old man uh, dies, you might say, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, he still leaves a, um, a bitter smell behind. And we're drawn back to the old ways of life. And we have a good day. We say, well, I'm, I'm Christ-centered today. Why? Well, I read the Bible. God spoke to my heart in a real way. Man, I'm, I'm just, I'm passionate for God. I keep reading the Bible and it just keeps coming. And, and, you're, and you're Christ-centered and you feel the love of God come through you. On the other hand, if you're not into the word, you're not into prayer, you're not into uh, being among other people in church and in a small group and you're not, you're not encouraged and you're not built up in that, you tend to be more self-centered. It's, it's a constant battle that's going on. So why don't we want to serve on a consistent basis? Why, why don't we make a difference in people's lives on a consistent basis? Well, it's because we're, we tend to be more self-centered than, than God-centered. And therefore, the love of Christ is not coming through us. We just go back to our natural way of loving. And that is the people that are most important to us. And that's about it. And so God says, in order to serve consistently, you have to do it out of a heart of love. So what does this look like? What does this really look like? In a practical way, what can we say this morning to maybe make a practical difference that you could treat other people better? Because here's the question. 
How do you want to be treated? The Bible says here, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, how you treat, how, whatever, whatever you want, that's how you treat others. However you want to be treated, if I can translate that, you treat others that way. Well, how do you want to be treated? Well, I put together a little bit from a little list, I think, from the Bible, but also some psychologists and also leadership guys would back this up. So let me give you four or five, just as practicality. You can write them down. You can start here. First of all, I think that you want people to appreciate you. Um, you do. How many people like that? You, you like to be appreciated. Okay, not many people will hear. Um, Jesus in John 17 really encouraged the disciples because they needed encouragement and they were thinking, wow, Jesus is praying for us. Wow, what, what kind of encouragement is that? I mean, we're, we're important enough for Jesus to pray for us. He's taking a whole chapter of the Bible, you might say, and praying for us. So how many of you really not like to be appreciated? Okay, one person likes to be appreciated. Well, a psychologist, William James, says this. The deepest craving in human nature is the craving to be appreciated. Now, if you don't believe that, why are you becoming more and more like your mom and dad every day? You see that commercial, right? About, I can't even remember what's advertising. A guy says, are you becoming more like your father? And he has the old sweater on, all that kind of stuff. You know, um, I, when, I was, when I became a parent, I said to myself, I will never say to my kids, when I was your age, but I couldn't help myself. And so, you know, when I was your age, man, I bought my own car. I got a job and I bought my own car. I put myself through school. I didn't have it like you have it. Why do I do that? Why did I do that? Why did your parents say, hey, you know, when I was going to school, I was walking up the hills of Florida. And I lived in Miami walking through the snow to go to school both ways, that kind of thing. And, you know, why do they do that? And, and, you know, of course, you know, your kids roll your eyes and here we go again. But why? why? Well, they want you to, they want you to be grateful. The number one need of a parent, what they want for their children more than anything else is to be happy. Number two is to be grateful. And sometimes we're just, we just weren't grateful growing up. We, we didn't express that to other people. Now, what about, I mean, we all want to be thanked for things, right? I mean, when you're riding in a car and you let somebody in front of you, what do you expect? A wave. Sure. Man, you got to get your wave. It ruins my life for 30 seconds if I don't get a wave. Yeah. In fact, sometimes I'll wave twice because I want to make sure that person knows that I'm grateful for that. And what do we get if somebody says, thank you, what do you say in return? Yeah, you're welcome. You see, it's like a reciprocal thing, just kind of like a circle that goes around. You do something good, you want to be thanked for it. And then you, when you're thanked for it, you acknowledge that gratefulness. We want to be appreciated for who we are and for what we do. And so if you want to be appreciated, and I think one or two of you did, um, you want to, of course, you want to be appreciated. What does Jesus tell you then? He says you appreciate others. You want others also to uh, understand you. Look in chapter 7, verse 1, uh, before we even got to our text today. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment 
you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He says, look, you can reach back and judge someone if you'd like, but isn't it better to understand where they're coming from? We are in an age where everybody's being canceled out. Nobody's talking. Nobody wants to understand. I mean, after all, if you approach something, as I said before, where you're arguing with me about something that's so vital to my life. You're, uh, you're really attacking my identity of who, who I am. And so I'm not going to listen to you, but we want to be understood. So if we want to be understood, we need to be understanding of others. Jesus was the woman at the well, the story of the woman caught in adultery, the question even from the lawyer that we just mentioned a few moments ago. You also want people to encourage you. You want encouragement from God. In chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, it talks about the salt of the earth. Where the, Jesus said, look, the church, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. You're the city that sit upon a hill. That's important. He's valuing us. He's encouraging us. Hebrews 10.25 says, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Jesus was constantly adding value to others. In fact, if I could just imagine this just a moment, on a one to 10 scale with one being kind of like you don't, you don't matter at all to someone and 10 being, wow, you are a great person of value. Jesus put a 10 on everybody's forehead. Everybody he met, he met. What about Zacchaeus, you know, the guy up the, the sycamore tree in Luke, I think it was chapter 19. And Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Nobody liked him. Everybody hated him because he cheated people on their taxes as most tax collectors did because that's how kind of they made their, their living. And so he was up the sycamore tree so he could get to see Jesus. Jesus comes along and what happens? He sees him. He knows him. He calls him by name. He knows everything about him, but yet he still loved him. He said, tonight, I'm, I'm having dinner at your house, Zacchaeus. Jesus put a 10 on everyone's head. Let me share with you a little experiment that was done in San Francisco several years ago. And they took three teachers and uh, they said, look, we have 90 students in your grade uh, this year. And uh, we're going to give you, pointing to one teacher, we're going to give you the 30 smartest kids in the class. And we're going to give you the medium ones, you know, the BC students. And then over here, um, I'm sorry, but we're going to give you the slowest ones. And so each one of them went off the years, August, and they went their separate ways and taught their classes. At the end of the year, you can pretty much guess the test scores, the smartest, the, the group that was the smartest group got the highest scores. The ones in the medium, middle got the uh, the medium scores and the ones that were the slowest class got the lowest scores. So they pulled the teachers back together and they said, look, we just want you to know that you were selected at random as teachers and all 90 of your students were selected at random. You had some smart ones. You had some in the middle. You had some ones that were slower. Same with you and same with you. What was the difference? Well, the, the lady that thought or the, the teacher that thought I've got the smartest students. She treated them like the smartest students. She put a 10, a 10 on every single kid's head. And because the way she treated them, they learned better. They learned faster. The ones in the middle, same way. The ones over here, she, you know, she was probably compassionate. 
She was probably saying, you know, these, these students, you know, I, I've just got to bring them along slowly. And if I just get them to the next grade, that's all that matters. It was how they treated their students. So you today want to be encouraged. So what do you do? You become an encourager. And it's hard for some people to do. It's hard for some people to be understanding because you want to be understood so much that you just won't listen to somebody else and, and get their understanding. It's hard for you to be an encourager. Certain personalities, they have to do it so intentionally. But if you want other people to encourage you, if you're going to treat people like God wants you to treat them, you'll be an encourager. Also, you want people to help you, to help you maybe uh, practically, help you to grow spiritually as we're doing in our small groups. And if you didn't know Christ, you'd want people to come and witness to you, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? Listen, no one, you know, I, I'm just like you. When, when I get cocooned in my own home, I don't want people coming around knocking on my door, no offense. But, you know, when I do, I just get up, you know, all that. Hope, hopefully it's somebody delivering something. Just leave it at the door. But I can tell you this, if I were lost without Jesus Christ, and I was going through the problems that most people go through that they don't, do not know Jesus Christ. And I know the person on the other side of that door had the answer to my problems. I would want them to come and I would let them in. Help. Come back to that in just a minute. Lastly, real quickly, you want to be forgiven. You want to be forgiven. Jesus speaks about that. Here in uh, chapter 6, he talks about give, forgiving people of their trespasses, and God will also forgive you. You know, there's some people in this world, many people, I'd say, dare say maybe most, that they don't know what it's like to feel forgiven because they've never known the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. They've never known what it's like to have a clean slate for Jesus to really die for their sins and that be applied to their life. But they want to be forgiven. They want you to forgive them. So what do we need to do? We need to forgive them the way we want them to forgive us. We can help people. We can make a difference. We can make a difference in people's lives by having a heart of ministry because we love God and because we love others. I shared with you, I was going to tell you one more story. Let me do that and I'll close. Elizabeth Ballard tells a story, and maybe it was about herself, because the teacher's name was Elizabeth Thompson. And she tells the story, Elizabeth Thompson tells a story to, I guess, Elizabeth Ballard, about the time that she was teaching and she had a new grade come in, coming in. She said, most, she said, most teachers do have their favorites, and sometimes they have someone, somebody that they don't particularly care for, a student. But she said that particular year she had no favorites. But she did have one little boy by the name of Teddy that she just disliked. And she said, you know, he had longer hair. He had to get the, the hair out of his kind of greasy. And he had to kind of get the hair out of his head to even write. He was slow behind the class. He, had, he was always dirty. And he had a smell to him that she couldn't really identify and so the year started, and she, she sort of grew into a place where when she got his paper with all the mistakes on it, she enjoyed marking it up with red. She went to his folder trying to justify how she was feeling. It said first grade. Teddy's very slow. Not up with the rest of the class. Grade two. They passed him. 
Grade two, his mother's very ill, no help at home. Year three, his mother passed away. His father's disinterested. Year four, continues to be slow behind the class. And she thought to herself, he should have been held back long ago. This will do him good. I'll just hold him back. Christmas began to come near. And they had a little Christmas party where a lot of the children, in fact, I guess all the children brought her a little gift. Well, right in the middle of it all, she picked up the package and it had a brown paper bag with duct tape on it. And it said to Mrs. Tom- Miss Thompson from Teddy. Well, she opened it up and she found in it a, uh, a bracelet, rhinestone bracelet, had a lot of the rhinestones missing, kind of a gaudy looking thing and a half um, bottle of dime store perfume. And the children started laughing because he was sort of the the butt of every joke. They all knew the teacher didn't like him and they, they could treat him any way they want. She wouldn't do anything about it. This is her story. And she said, but she felt a time of compassion for him. And so she said, well, Teddy, why don't you help me put this bracelet on? He did. And then she took the perfume put a little behind her ears and the little girls came along she kind of did the same thing to them well the bell rang and she said well have a great Christmas see you the first of the year everybody left but Teddy and he came up to the desk and uh, he said Miss Thompson you smell like my mom and her bracelet looks really good on you too as he left the room she felt the conviction of God on her heart laid her head on her desk and started crying. And she said, I I couldn't hardly even remember stopping. Before she left the room, she was dead set on bringing him along as far as she could in the five months she would have left because she knew they would be moving on and moving out of state at the end of the year. He came in, she talked to him, talked to the dad. He began to stay after class every day. She began to help him, sometimes personally, sometimes he would just do his work as she was uh, grading papers. But the end of those five months, he left. But she knew in her heart he would be okay. And so, seven years passed. Now, think about it. You invest in someone's life for five months. Seven years pass. He sends, Teddy sends a letter to Miss Thompson. He said, I want you to be the first to know I'll be graduating second in my class next month. I send him a congratulations, a small package, a pen and a pencil gift set. And then four years later, Teddy's second letter came. I want you to know, to be the first to know, I was informed that I will be graduating first in my class. The university has not been easy but I liked it. She sent him another little gift. And then the third letter came. I want you to know, be the first to know, as of today, I am Theodore Stallard, MD. How about that? I'm going to be married on July the 27th, to be exact. And I wanted to ask you to come and sit where my mom would sit if she were here today. I have no family, as my dad died last year. Signed, Teddy. I'm not sure what kind of gift one sends to a doctor or completion of medical school, state boards. Maybe I'll just wait for it to be a wedding gift. So I sent him back a note, 
Congratulations, you made it. You did it yourself in spite of those like me, not because of us. This day has come to you. God bless you. I'll be at the wedding with bells on. Five months of intentional service and ministry to a young man that had no chance otherwise of making it. Seven years, 11 years, 15 years later, he still remembers her and looks at her as like a second mom. We can make a difference. We can make a difference. We come to the place in our life and just say, Lord, I want you in my heart. I want to be so dedicated to you that other people would be wondering what about the hope that's within me. I want to be part of a church group, maybe a small church group, like a small group that we serve and minister together. We can encourage one another and help one another and appreciate one another. I want that. But dear friend, the first step you have to make is not sign up necessarily for a class, even though you could be the first step. But the great step you have to make is to receive Christ into your life. And if you've never done that, then that's the place to start. The best news ever is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and it's a free gift. All you have to do is receive it. Would you do that today? With heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around, the quietness of this moment, I want to ask you if you pray this prayer with me, whether you're watching maybe by television or somewhere at home with a a computer, I would just like for you to pray this prayer with me. And you can pray silently as I pray aloud. Lord God, thank you so much for loving me. Thank you for your offer of forgiveness, encouragement, love. I open my heart. I ask you to forgive me of all my sins based on what Jesus did on the cross. And then I ask you to come into my heart. Make me the person that you want me to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.